Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thank you to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, welcome. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, how about making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is Magid Mandur. Magid is a political analyst and a regular contributor to Arab Digest and to Middle East Eye and Open Democracy. He's also a writer for Sada, the Carnegie Endowment online journal. Ibi Torres has just published his Egypt Under Sisi, A Nation on the Edge, and the book is the subject of our conversation today. Magid, welcome back to the AD Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be back. Now, before we talk about Egypt under el-Sisi, which I'm very keen to do, can I ask you about the line being pushed by elements in the Netanyahu government that Palestinians in Gaza would be relocated into North Sinai as part of a wider ethnic cleansing operation that would also see West Bank Palestinians driven into Jordan? What is your response to this idea of forcibly moving Gazans into Sinai? Well, it's not new, and I wouldn't say it's uh, an idea. It seems to be, uh, at least where I'm sitting, a policy. So it seems that the uh, Israelis are now decimating the North with the hopes of creating such a deep humanitarian crisis that it would spill over the border. The response is that this is not something new. This is something that we've been... Uh, hearing about for a while, and I'm not really talking about the past 10 years. It's from 1948, uh, which is basically following the logic or the ideas that the Palestinians as a people don't really exist, that they're somehow just generic Arabs. So the solution to the uh, Israeli uh, headache, which is the fact that the Palestinians actually exist in this land and they are a part of a historical community is to move them somewhere else where they would just blend into wherever Arabs there are. Um, and that would be the, the solution. And of course, this is, I, I mean, Orientalist is a light word to use here because it's just assuming that there is no Palestinian national movement, there is no Palestinian history, there is no Palestinian culture, and that the Palestinians can be just moved wherever. It's also assuming that Egypt does not have its kind of own internal dynamics, that somehow, somewhere, somebody can just raise the phone, talk to Sisi, and that he can somehow operate without any constraints, and he can accept somewhere in the area of 2.3 million uh, Palestinians just with the stroke of a pen. Of course, this is ridiculous, um, and it will never work, and it has never worked. The solution uh, that they're thinking about is is impossible. It's, 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 it's really not something that any Egyptian 
president can dare to contemplate without risking mass domestic disturbances. So the solution is not really a solution. It's one of those pipe dreams. Unfortunately, at the moment, as the war drags on, the humanitarian crisis in the South, as well as the North, but the the news coming out is that in the North, it will not be habitable for years to come. So this, of course, will continue to create pressures on the borders, leading to possible conflict into the future. So that would be the repercussions of the war from the uh, Egyptian side. Um, and and that will be the least of it at that. Mm. Yeah, so th- that pressure, as you say, will not go away. And, and, and also, as you say, describing it as Orientalist is is generous. Uh, it's a policy rooted in in racism and colonialist thinking. And as you say, it takes no consideration of the Palestinians as people. But look, let's move now to the book, which is, I've had a read of it. It's a comprehensive and acutely incisive study of the Sisi regime. It's a great read, and I congratulate you on it, Megan. But let us begin with your first chapter, which you titled Genesis, And I want to ask you about your analysis that Egypt, as constructed by Sisi, is, and I'm quoting here, anchored in a state of polarization and mass state violence. And that in creating that state structure, Sisi followed along, along, but then significantly altered a path that you traced all the way back to Nasser. Um, First of all, thank you. Uh, Yes. So uh, the logic in the book here, I am trying to uh, anchor Sisi's rise to power to the polarization that basically began from 2013 moving forward, but kind of reached its uh, height in, uh, in, in, in uh, 2013. What I'm basically trying to say or to uh, argue is the notion that Sisi created, or I, I mean, I wouldn't say that he just created that, but he uh, exploited and he uh, heightened this state of polarization through the massacres in uh, 2013, where he basically leaned into the Nasserist nationalist notion that somehow uh, Egypt as an entity has existed for 7,000 years, that there is something called the Egyptian people, and they are somehow this um, organic unity. And hence, he was able to uh, anchor the opposition and the brotherhood as something outside of this notion, outside of this uh, Egyptianness. And that laid bare the ideological foundation for the massacres in 2013. His brilliant stroke came when he asked for a a popular uh, mandate. So he was able to commit acts of mass state violence, not just by the organs of the state, but backed by a mass uh, popular support and in some cases, popular participation. And this is the narrative that is the foundation of the regime and it is a narrative that continues to dominate and this narrative can only survive based on this idea that uh, the state is somehow under threat 
and everybody in the opposition is somehow trying to destroy the state and it is only the military as the guardian of the state and uh, the nation that is uh, able to protect it. But if I just jump in there, Megan. Yes, of course. The military is it has been intertwined with the governance, the politics of Egypt for a very long time. What what has Sisi done that that marks it as being somewhat different from, you know, Anwar Sadat or Mubarak or indeed Nasser? If we go back, we see the military is very prominent. But you're arguing he's done something more with it. You are. Absolutely correct. So there are two ways to look at this. There is the view that since 1952, moving forward, the military has been the dominant institution and they have been more or less in power since uh, 1952. I don't particularly agree with it. So yes, from 1952 till maybe 1967, until... 2011, the military's power starts to diminish. And there is a move away from this clear, overt military dominance. It doesn't mean that the military was not a political actor. They were, and they were in the core of the regime, but they were competing with other political forces, including the the NDP, which was the mass ruling party under Mubarak. So the regime actually had a civilian mass party. At the moment, this is not the case. The military now controls the uh, state institutions completely, and I'm talking completely. There is no counterweight within the regime to balance out the military, and Sisi was able to revamp a certain form of, of Nasserism, which is placing the military right front and center as the main ideological embodiment of this notion of uh, Egyptianness. So that is a shift that I think we haven't seen since 1952. That's why in the book I am trying to argue that Sisi is a radically different form of autocrat that uh, Egypt hasn't seen before. This is something completely new. So you cannot compare him to anyone before. The military's preponderance, yes, is uh, is not new, but there were always other forces to counter it. Now, for the first time, Egypt is under direct military rule without even a civilian cloak, without even um, a party somehow that the president can head. So Sisi is not the head of any political party. Parliament uh, plays no role at all in uh, policy. Even the competition between the security services seems to have completely disappeared. At least it's not a prominent factor. So the military is really in control, not just of the uh, executive and the security services, but as well as in control of the parliament, as well as the judiciary. Yeah, let's look at the judiciary, because I think that's an excellent example of how these institutions, as you say, have been completely hollowed out. What was Sisi able to do that turned the judiciary into part of this new structure that you've you've described? So from 
2013, the judiciary, at least most of it, not everyone, uh, of course, there was some uh, resistance, but they played a very prominent role in the repression of the Brotherhood. So if if the listeners remember, there were mass execution rulings with, with, with like the hundreds, uh, a case of, I don't know, 700 defendants, and they were all sentenced to die. Um, that was later uh, commuted, but that wasn't abnormal. So the judiciary did jump on the bandwagon of repression. However, there were cases of resistance, most notably in the transfer of the islands from uh, Egyptian to Saudi sovereignty, which uh, I think happened in 2016, 2017. But what Sisi did was to basically change the laws and the constitution in a way that dramatically eroded the power of the uh, judiciary. So now the president has the power to appoint uh, senior judges, uh, oversee their careers, demotions, uh, etc. And he was also able to extend the uh, jurisdiction of the uh, um, military courts in such a way that he can use it freely to basically repress dissent. But the most important aspect here is also ideological. The judiciary did jump into this narrative that the Egyptian state is under threat, now it will collapse, and we need to use whatever we need to do to save it. So everything became this massive existential threat, which basically justified this mass repression, which the judiciary is a part of. So now at the moment, the independence of the judiciary, it almost does not exist, especially in cases where repression um, is required by the regime, which was not the case before. Yes, it wasn't the most independent, uh, but it was not the case before. Now this is once again, a dramatic shift where we see the uh, judiciary playing this very clear uh, political prominent role in the uh, repression of uh, uh, dissent. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because this is precisely what uh, Netanyahu was until the war began, and perhaps we'll try again once the war ends, was trying to do in Israel. But you now you've mentioned the, the massacres uh, in 2013, there was also, and you discussed this too, the, the murder of the Italian uh, PhD student, Giulio Regini. Egypt, under every government, has used excessive force. So how does the Sisi regime differ in that regard? Well, so the massacres basically started in 2013, but they never really stopped. <laughs> like, uh, in the beginning, I thought this will stop, but it has continued to be this mass bloodletting that hasn't really abated, but we just don't hear about it that much anymore. So uh, in uh, places like uh, the Sinai, there were uh, mass uh, killings in in the, uh, in the um, regime's uh, prisons, which can only be described as dungeons. It, it's, it's really medieval. Uh, this uh, continues, not at the same scale, of course, but the intensity of the repression hasn't really slowed down, which is one of the things that is very new. 
is that repression now is an end of itself. It is not really a mean used by the regime for political reasons. So it's not that they find this guy who is very dangerous and he needs to disappear. The web of repression has a life of its own and it has a logic of of its own. So for the case of Regini, which is the only one that I'm aware of that is quite well documented, he was uh, abducted, tortured, and killed uh, basically for doing research. The logical thing to do to kind of avoid this mess is to simply deport him, which they could have easily done that. But because of the security services' own belief in their own conspiracy theories, this was not an option because he was considered to be a, a British spy. Why British? Don't even ask me. But that was the logic. So he just fell into this kind of ongoing apparatus and a process, and he just basically got caught into it. And now we are seeing what I would like to call is decentralized repression, where the center, the presidency, the military does not control repression as thoroughly as people might think. Now it is the petty security official that is basically able to do whatever they want because they are also the main constituency of the regime. So you cannot feed them this logic of this existential crisis and you can do whatever you want and there will be no consequences whatsoever and then expect them to hold back, which is which is basically what happened. So the regime has adamantly refused to hold anyone accountable. I'm talking about anyone. I showed trial, a police officer somehow, call it a rogue uh, operation. Even the Saudis in the uh, Khashoggi case, they did something. Yes, it wasn't very convincing, but they did something. There was an acknowledgement. But in the Egyptian case, they basically said no, and there will be no consequences whatsoever because they're aware that if there are consequences, this will have a grave uh, implications on how this whole edifice is actually put together. Um, mm. So they were willing to risk this, um, and they got away with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, violence having its own impetus and really its own independence, if I can put it that way, which is ex extraordinarily dangerous um, for this poor fellow, but also for the Egyptian people. And it just goes on, doesn't it? Correct. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Magid Mandur, whose book, Egypt under al-Sisi, has just been published by Ibitoris. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. If you'd like to support that independent voice, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you now, and it's, an, it's something you've written about very, very well in, in our Arab Digest newsletter, is, is the extent to which the economy has been absorbed into the military with the diminishment of the private sector as a result. And then there's this reliance on massive amounts of foreign debts and you argue that these are all examples of how the regime has set a trap for itself. Can you open up that a little bit for us, uh, Megat? Since they came to power, 
in 2013, the logic was the uh, accumulation of political power in the hands of the military at, at the expense of everyone else. And here, I mean, everyone else, even kind of allied social forces, uh, businessmen that could work with uh, the military. Nobody is allowed any prominent policy role except the military. And this has been a, a process since since 2013 until uh, today, actually. And the byproduct of that, or I wouldn't even say the byproduct, I would say the direct result of this is that the military, through its dominance of the state, was able to control economic policy in a way that it has never been able to do before. So there is this kind of imagination in Sisi's mind, at least it's what it looks like, is that he wants to transform Egypt into a Dubai, just for the rich, not, not for the poor, though. So he went into this un checked spending spree, which tied in quite nicely into this nationalist mega project narrative and the idea that he is transforming the country and uh, defeating uh, the what he called people of evil, which is um, kind of a funny thing to say. Um, and then he used all of that debt to build those mega projects that have no clear economic return. And once the credit uh, dried up, the crisis that uh, Egypt is going through basically happened, which seems to to me at least that it is a crisis that will continue for years and it will uh, define his, his presidency. But the problem with this or the misunderstanding is that it is not just pure technocratic economic policy. It is connected to the political system that the regime has successfully built. So it's not just that he was following policies that were not correct. This is all somehow tying together into his ideological indoctrination of his uh, support base that we're going to rebuild the country, we're going to transform it, and we're going to borrow so much money, but that really doesn't matter because we will grow so fast that we'll be able to pay it back, as well as the logic that the Gulf somehow will always step in, which is not happening right now. And that to achieve that, we will have to pay whatever price that needs to be paid, including not being able to uh, eat. And that is a direct quote from him, which uh, he just uh, said a couple of months ago. Yeah, so the disaster here is connected to uh, the political system um, that he uh, built. And and this massive foreign debt at some at some point, uh, unless the World Bank and the various other lenders decide that it, uh, Egypt is too big to fail, at some point this will come crashing down around his ears. But in the meantime, as you say, it's the Egyptian people who are paying the price, and and, and that's a very interesting point, isn't it? That uh, you know that that people will go hungry uh, to fulfill this um, th this mad dream. And, and of course, where the, the Giga project that for me, and I think for you too, that really speaks to this is this new administrative capital, the NAC, which at one point you write, will not only allow the regime to isolate itself from popular pressure, but also unleash mass repression on urban centers on an unprecedented scale. 
Talk a little bit about that, Megid. Correct. So this is a project for me, at least, that is kind of symbolizing the past 10 years. It is huge. Um, I think the first phase alone is is uh, budgeted to be about 58 billion. And there is a fantasy that the entire thing is going to cost $300 billion. Of course, this will not happen because they just ran out of money. And there is no clear economic rationale for it. The rationale presented by CC is that somehow when he is uh, able to build there, then the value of the land will increase and then he will be able to sell that land to make money, which is the logic of a real estate developer, <laughs> not, not president. But the difficulty here, which is an aspect that's not really covered much, is that it is a city in uh, the desert purely for the rich. So the cost of a flat there, like, the cheapest is about 80,000 US dollars, which is beyond the reach of most people uh, in Egypt. It is heavily monitored with security cameras. The The building of the, of the Ministry of Defense looks like a citadel built uh, underground. So it really looks like he is trying to move the centers of political power away from the urban centers that might revolt in a way that he would be able to control it. And when required, he can repress Cairo without kind of the upper classes seeing this or having their lives affected. So he is basically creating a physical space where he will be able to repress almost unchecked. There is no reason whatsoever for him to worry uh, about the disruption of the government, businesses, life will go on as normal outside of the city. But if there is a rebellion, if there is a revolt, then he can repress it at will with as much ferocity as he would like to use. It's a... Uh... It's it's an appalling vision, isn't it? Because you get the idea, the feeling that you have this city of, 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 of the wealthy and the powerful, and then you have the rest of the country uh, suffering enormously. Uh, it, it's quite a it's quite a nightmarish vision, and and uh, one that we and you have talked about previously on the podcasts of Orwellian in the extreme. However, you end. Egypt under al-Sisi on a note of what I'd call muted optimism, given the repressive strength of the structure that Sisi has built, what are you basing that optimism on, Megan? I mean, I'm generally not an optimistic person, so it's hard for me to show some of that. But I was just trying to think, what would be the possible avenues for the continuation of the regime? So the current crisis is extremely deep. There are no clear solutions. So for me, there were three things that I basically thought about. Uh, either self-reform, uh, explosion, or an implosion. So the least likely one is the self-reform logic, which is somehow the military elites are going to realize that this just cannot continue the way that it is, and that we need to change policy and to open up and to uh, democratize. The reason for this is that structurally, there is no civilian wing that is somehow able to balance 
the opposition is very weak and and CC was so successful in uh, militarizing the state that he doesn't really need to or he is basically unable to reform from the top uh, so to speak the second idea is the is the explosion which is unfortunately more likely and it's extremely terrifying which is just mass uh, protests the regime doesn't have a uh, civilian opposition that is rooted in the ground that could somehow be a negotiating partner so so they will just resort to mass violence leading to mass death which will lead to further radicalization what's kind of speaks against that is that there's no way to predict the response of the rank and file military members if they are actually asked to do something like this against a mass social uh, uprising. It can potentially work because the military before 2013 is not the same as the military after it. They have been ideologically uh, indoctrinated much more than before. Now they are imbued with this sense of saving the country and saving the city, this kind of chauvinistic, nationalist, fascist uh, ideas. The most likely scenario, which will take a very long time, is the idea of uh, implosion, which is this kind of slow erosion through long resistance against the regime fatigue, uh, opening up of those uh, spaces where the opposition can somehow consolidate itself and slowly apply uh, pressure until just basically the regime at some point collapses to the surprise of many. Mm. This, I think, is the most realistic scenario, but all of this is, I mean, it's very hard to predict and it's also very hard to see uh, how are those uh, openings uh, happening but what is clear to me is that the current situation cannot continue forever however it is important to highlight which is what i try to do with uh, the book is that even if the regime collapses tomorrow by some sort of a miracle the deep structural changes that were introduced are extremely difficult to reverse which means that there will be a long transitional period where this will have to be reversed and it won't be this very quick change where suddenly everything shifts because the structure of the state has to has to change the position of the security services and the economic crisis that is happening at the moment is not something that can be resolved quickly this will take an extremely long time um, to solve all of this. But as you say, there are people inside and outside the country, and you're one of them, working away. And this structure, this structure, uh, the best scenario would be that it collapses uh, f from within, and that, as you say, it's going to take a long time, but Egypt is able to move forward uh, once that happens without too much violence. I guess that's the best we can hope for. The book is called Egypt Under LCC, A Nation on the Edge. And um, I thank you for writing it. And I thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, Megan. Thank you so much, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Megan Mandur. His book, Egypt Under LCC, 
A Nation on the Edge, has just been published by I.B. Torres. And to anyone even remotely interested in Egypt and its trajectory under Sisi, I simply cannot recommend it highly enough. Maggot has written a book that is accessible and full of insight. Order it online or ask for it at your local bookstore. You may have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Will you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Magid. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of nearly 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights. Insights you simply will not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. (music) 